Welcome to The Collective Tap, conversations about water. I'm your host, Taylor Bennett. Our first season is titled The Spigot. It focuses on the water that comes into our homes and the ways we use it. Join us as our field host, Taz Walters and Devin Dabney, talk with experts about what exactly is in our water, the real cost of a green lawn, how water-related issues impact our health, and the affordability of this basic resource. In this first episode, we talk with Indiana University epidemiologist Thomas Dzinski, Marion County Health Department Water Quality Supervisor Gretchen Quirk, and Purdue University Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering Andrew Welton. We discuss the state of water coming from our faucets, its safety, why clean water is critical to individual and community health, the threats it faces, and how we can help improve the overall system. Our first conversation is with Dr. Thomas Dzinski. Dr. Dzinski is a clinical assistant professor and director of epidemiology education at Indiana University. He gets us started with a little history about the role that water plays in our relationship with hygiene and where that relationship stands today. I'm Thomas Dzinski. I'm a professor at Indiana University's Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health on the IUPUI campus. In this episode, we are talking about hygiene and how it relates to water. When we are taking a bath or a shower, what is there coming out of our faucets that we should be aware of? Hopefully, <laughs> it's clean, what we call potable water, right? So it's water that would be safe for human consumption and body contact um, that can be used for cooking, cleaning, uh, drinking, everything we as humans would need water for. Uh, so that's a really important thing. We need to have that in order to survive. The other important part of that, though, is it's got to go somewhere, right? So it's got to drain away to another safe place so we don't contaminate our wholesome supply. What are some of the big changes that have happened with hygiene over, over the years? Really, you know, we could look back uh, to more than 4,000 years ago in Mesopotamia. We could look in Persia. Long before the Romans, so the Romans definitely kind of figured this idea of, you know, clean water out and keeping clean and, and plumbing and stuff like that. But there's a lot of evidence to show that even uh, 4,000 plus years ago or 4,000 BCE, before Common Era, uh, the Mesopotamians knew something about having clean water is really important and then having a place for the dirty water to go, right? Uh, so there's a ton of history around this. Even looking in um, like some of the ancient texts, we look at like uh, the book of Leviticus in the Christian Bible. Uh, we can look in the Quran. We can look in you know, almost every major religion has some reference to the importance of cleanliness uh, and the use of water to clean that, right? So they, they recognize, look, I need clean water, but I also need to have sanitary sewers. I need some way to to get rid of the dirty water so it doesn't contaminate my clean water. So my students ask me all the time, well, which is more important, clean water or, or sanitary sewers? And I say, yes, it's both. <laughs> you can't have one without the other. Is there like an epidemiology reason for cleaning yourself? Like if you don't clean yourself, are you more likely to spread diseases? I'll answer that question back with a question. Um, after you use the bathroom, do you wash your hands? Well, yes. Why? There you go. Yeah, okay. Diseases, germs, <laughs> Right, exactly sure. right. So it's this idea E. coli. <laughs> yeah, you know, washing our hands is probably the most important thing we could do as a population. And um, half of my job comes from people not washing their hands 
when they're supposed to, right? That's, that's so this link between staying clean and keeping our hands clean and disease has been seen throughout the centuries. Um, and, you know, there's a great story about Dr. Egnitz Semmelweis, who was a surgeon. Um, and he was studying this, uh, what they call uh, childbed fever uh, with mothers that had just delivered, right? So the, and the infant mortality and maternal mortality went up and he couldn't figure out why, what was happening. Uh, and he noticed, you know this story? Yeah. yeah. He noticed that midwives had a much lower mortality rate for moms and babies than the doctors did. And he realized that doctors were going from the autopsy room where a mom had just died from this childbed fever into the delivery room without washing their hands, right? Whereas midwives, before they would do delivery, they would wash their hands. Uh, and he recognized this and implemented that and maternal mortality and infant mortality went down. I could be misremembering this, but didn't at the time they not believe that that was what they was going on? They laughed him out of the hospital. Yeah, yeah. That's why I remember this story. Unfortunately, it's a, such a tragic story because the guy ended up going to an insane asylum yeah, where yeah. he was beaten to death. <laughs> yeah. uh, but he had solved one of the major crises at the time and nobody believed him. Um, we've talked about the past of hygiene. Can we talk a little bit about the future of hygiene, especially in a post-COVID world, and maybe a little bit about how water usage might come into that landscape? Sure. Um, so in post-COVID world and hygiene, I think we have to be uh, very cognizant of one, washing our hands, right? Um, that, that actually does uh, reduce the amount of bacteria that's on our hands that we could then touch our eyes or our mouth. Um, you know, because we know the average person touches their face about 20 times per hour, okay? Uh, so when you think about everything else you touch and your face in that hour, right, there's the small chance that you could contaminate yourself in some way or infect yourself. Uh, but post-COVID, you know, the, the hand washing uh, and even when we look in the future and the amount of people on the planet, right, just thinking about that and, you know, the 8 billion people we're projected to get to nine or 10 billion people. Are we gonna have enough clean water to support nine to 10 billion people? And will we have sanitary sewers to support nine to 10 billion without contaminating our water? So, uh, you know, in a post-COVID world, I, I think hygiene and um, good hand washing and food preparation, those are gonna be important, but I'm more worried about, do we have enough clean water on the planet to support the amount of people that will eventually live here. As an epidemiologist, what is the most frustrating piece of misinformation for you? Um, oh, there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's a tough question. It, it is, uh, you know, that um, I use hand sanitizer and it's just as good as soap and water. Hand sanitizer is good. There's nothing wrong with it, but soap and water is still best. Right. Absolutely. So my wife's a nurse and, you know, she washed her hands multiple times a day to the point where her hands were just dry and cracked all the time. And, you know, was constantly applying lotion in the evening. Uh, and that's still the best method. Hand sanitizers are a close second, I would say. Uh, but don't use it as a total substitution for soap and water. What do you see as our biggest hygiene challenges today? Um, and how can we improve like our systems and infrastructure to better safeguard our personal and public health? Oh, great question. Questions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so one of our biggest challenges today, it, it still remains, 
when to wash your hands, right? And knowing when and then physically doing it. I think the second biggest challenge is keeping our water clean, right? I mean, our, our drinking water sources, uh, where does our drinking water come from? Even though it goes through a filtration plant and, and you know gets chlorinated and stuff, obviously we still wanna keep it as clean as possible before we have to do that. Because if we have to do more and more of that, it becomes very costly to do so. Uh, it's challenging, it's taxing resources that we have. Uh, so if we can keep our water cleaner, uh, I think the better off we're going to be down the road. In the whole scope of epidemiology, like is water one of the biggest things you look at? Water is definitely one of the biggest things we okay. look at. Yeah, I mean, I guess it shouldn't is. surprise. I mean, I've read about like cholera and like stuff like oh, that, which is so like water-based. And I know that there's a lot of diseases that come from water. Yeah. But it is still kind of surprising to me that like, oh, water is like a big thing that you look at in like today's day and age. Yeah. Even back, you know, so you brought up the cholera. Um, and there was Dr. John Snow, not Game of Thrones, John Snow. That John Snow knows nothing. The John Snow I'm talking about knew everything. He, yeah. he was a physician, he was an anesthesiologist, and recognized that, oh, cholera, which was a, a waterborne disease, had bacteria in it, that would, could kill people within hours, right, if you got a big enough dose of it. Uh, and most people at the time believed Oh, cholera comes from something called miasma or bad air, right? These yeah. evil spirits or divine retribution. Uh, and Snow was one of the few people that was a, what we call a contagionist, that there is something we can't see in the water uh, that's making us ill. And very few people believed that at the time. Uh, so the wonderful story of him in the 1850s in mid-London during the height of a cholera epidemic, he convinced the town council to remove the pump handle. So people couldn't pump the contaminated water anymore and drink it. Uh, and it ended the outbreak. It ended the epidemic. Even after that was over, they still believed that it was bad air that caused the disease. So like Semmelweis, way ahead of his time, but couldn't convince others that, you know, it's in the water. I read a book that had a whole section devoted to Jon Snow, and I thought one of the funniest things kind of ironic is that he was like a big abolitionist and then they built a tavern right next to that pump and like named it after him in his honor. Yes, I've been to that tavern. Yeah. I've stood there where the pump was. I mean, it's, it's what I call the epicenter of the universe, right? This idea that, you know, he's one of the fathers of modern epidemiology because he had kind of figured this out. And it started with water. It all started with water. When looking at hygiene, with water potentially becoming less available in the future, how will that impact our hygiene practices? And is that something that you worry about? So clean water availability is always something we should all worry about, to be honest. Um, you know, and you think back, I'm, I'm probably the oldest person in the room right now. Uh, but when I was young, you know, we brush our teeth and the faucet would just run. Right, we just turn it on and it would run, 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 the whole time we were brushing our teeth. And you do this twice a day, and me and my three brothers all washing, brushing our teeth, right, with a lot of water usage. Uh, and that became a thing where don't leave the water running, right? Well, here it's an idea of let's conserve a natural resource because it's limited when you think about it. Yeah, the world's covered in water, but only a small percentage of is usable for us, right? So we really, this idea of conservation, um, has to increase. We really have to protect that natural resource. And I think it's going to become more important 5, 10, 15 years down the road uh, because as climate change occurs, 
you know, sea levels rise, they could actually contaminate the clean water we have, right? Having seawater mixed with fresh water would no longer be a usable option for us. With the addition of the population, right, it, that resource gets really, really tight 10, 15, 20, 50 years down the road from now. It's so hard with stuff like this to have, like help people understand the gravity of it because it's in the future, you know? Like I can go in the sink right or in the bathroom right now and just turn on a faucet and it can run. Have safe water. Yeah, yeah. forever, uh, ostensibly forever. Well, it's one of those things I think we've taken for granted for so long in this country, right? That I turn on the tap and it's safe and yeah. it, it goes somewhere and I don't have to worry about it again. And I turn on another tap and it's safe, right? So this idea that there's, this unlimited resource. And we know that simply isn't the case anymore, right? And uh, I think that there's gonna be more and more of these issues coming up in, in the next 10, 15 years uh, where it isn't something we should be taking for granted. We have to protect almost every drop. Well, and it feels like such a big problem that it doesn't even feel approachable to solve in any way. I, yeah, I think it, it can be perceived as that, but I don't think it is that. I think we could all do some parts to lessen the burden on this, right? Like not letting the faucet run when you brush your teeth, maybe reducing the number of showers per week, right? To absolutely necessary sort of things. There, there are simple steps that everybody could do and take to protect that resource. Dr. Dzinski helped us understand why water quality plays such an important part in hygiene practices in the water we consume. Now let's turn to Gretchen Quirk from the Marion County Health Department in Indianapolis, Indiana, to learn what our local agencies are doing to monitor our water. Taz and Devin ask about potential contaminants, testing, and how well water poses a different set of challenges. My name's Gretchen Quirk, and I'm the Water Quality Supervisor at the Marion County Public Health Department. So what does that mean? We do a lot of well sampling, uh, testing the water. We have our own lab that can do a lot of the analysis. So we do a lot of education outreach. We do some business inspections. We do some um, river monitoring. We do some hazmat emergency response. So our department does a lot of those different things. In a city like a place where water is so accessible, I know I can take for granted sometimes that the water coming out of my tap is always clean and safe. Is that necessarily true? There's two different types of water that you have in your home. So most people in the city are on city water or municipal water. If you pay a water bill, it comes from a water treatment plant. That water originates from a variety of sources. Um, it can come from the reservoir, the rivers, and some of it is actually groundwater as well, all my kind of mixed together. So that water is filtered, it's treated, it's tested, it's pretty well regulated. So when it leaves the treatment plant, it is considered safe to drink, and then it's piped into our homes. Um, that's one type of water. The other type of water is well water. So there's a lot of private wells in Indianapolis. It's not just a rural um, water source, but there are pockets, little neighborhoods all throughout the city that are on private wells. So that is just raw, untreated groundwater being pumped from the ground right into the home. The only way to know if that water is safe is to test it. I'm on a well, and this uh, podcast has made me go, oh, I should be testing my well a lot more often. <laughs> yeah, you can't tell. Our main message to well owners is that you can't tell by the taste, the odor, the look of it, if it's safe to drink. You really have to test it, and it's, it's up to the residents on private wells to do that, which is one of the services that we offer. 
When you are monitoring for contaminants, what are you looking for and what have you found? Well, for wells, we do find uh, bacteria is pretty common. It kind of builds up in the pipes. So we have instructions on how you can chlorinate the well and disinfect your plumbing yourself. Um, we have a lot of arsenic in Marion County. It's naturally occurring, but there's some pockets that it's pretty high. So when we take an analysis, we do bacteria, E. coli, we do about 16 different heavy metals, including lead, arsenic, mercury. We do um, nutrients like nitrates, and we also do a whole list of um, really nasty industrial chemicals. So once you identify a problem or an issue with a water source for a particular homeowner, what happens next? Well, if we do find um, something that's unsafe in the water, we definitely let them know. We give them recommendations. Again, if it's bacteria, we have instructions on how they can disinfect their plumbing, which is pretty straightforward and easy to do themselves. If we find some chemical contamination, then we can recommend different treatment options, things that they can install and offer to do, you know, just routine testing. We recommend well owners test their well once a year just to make sure that it's safe. To take this into kind of the hygiene area, when we're talking about protecting our waterways, can you speak about what we're sending back into the system in terms of like our hygiene practices? As far as hygiene, I mean, when we talk about bacteria and chemicals in the water that can impact our health, um, you know, those are things that have to be ingested. Mm -hmm. So we're concerned about drinking water, the water you're cooking with, making formula with, um, you know, for bacteria like E. coli, those will cause for acute issues, gastrointestinal mm -hmm. problems. Some of the chemicals and heavy metals are more carcinogens, so it's more of a chronic um, impact on your health, but they really have to be ingested. So using that water for showering, cleaning, washing hands, it's still okay. Even if there's some arsenic or lead in the water, mm -hmm. we still it's still okay to use for those purposes. We're just concerned about actually ingesting it because that's how it, it hurts you. That is interesting to know about that because I don't know, maybe just because of how it was taught to me as a kid, I just think like if lead is in your water at all, you're gonna die like immediately. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it just. And that's a real concern. We get a lot of people calling and concerned, you know, they don't want to use it for anything. Mm -hmm. And so we tell people, well, you know, you still need to keep your house clean and wash your hands so you don't get sick and obviously shower. So those things are safe. Are there any things that like homeowners can do proactively to protect their water? There's a lot of things that as a community we can do to prevent um, contamination into our waterways. Regardless of what type of water you have in your home, it's all, gonna, it's all coming from the ground or the river. Mm -hmm. So protecting those waterways and preventing pollution into those in the first place is really the best thing, kind of all of our responsibility to do that. Things like not dumping things down storm drains. You know, those are just for rainwater because those go right to the river. Cleaning up any spills that happen so that they don't wash away when it rains or make their way down into the ground. Um, people that are on septic systems, making sure that they're maintaining those so that there's no sewage contamination. Every time it rains, it, all that rain is just running anything on the ground off into our rivers. The more we can protect those water sources, the better, because that really is the same water that's coming into your kitchen faucet. Dr. Andrew Welton is a professor of civil, environmental, and ecological engineering at Purdue University. 
Dr. Welton closes out this episode with a conversation about his recently published study on the issues that may be lurking in our pipes and why it's so challenging to predict what's in the water that comes through them. My name is Andrew Welton. I'm a professor of civil, environmental, and ecological engineering at Purdue University and the director of the Center for Plumbing Safety and Healthy Plumbing Consortium. You recently did a, an EPA-funded study on contaminants in home plumbing. Uh, I know this is like a big question, but what are some of the things that you found? The study that we conducted here at Purdue was a, a teaming with industry, the plumbing industry, uh, nonprofit organizations, the Nature Conservancy, but also uh, Michigan State University professors, Manhattan College and New York City professors, Tulane University professors, and University of Memphis professors. And we all got together, and really three things that stuck out at us. Uh, first, when we were creating a proposal, because EPA asked for it, it turns out that we can't actually predict water safety at the faucet. Like, there's a whole bunch of laws and procedures and actions that happen but nobody can go in and tell you what level of lead you're going to have at 8 o'clock in the morning at your kitchen sink or what the concentration of Legionella is going to be at a faucet after a building has been vacated for a month. And so through this project, we developed knowledge by going out and testing all these different commercial buildings and homes. So we help people understand water quality in their homes tried to pull all that information together. And then what we did was we heavily monitored this one home right next to Purdue's campus. Mm -hmm. We collected over six billion data points of online monitoring, temperature, flow rate, every second of every day in this home, right? Something that's never been done before to try to figure out, you know, can we actually predict water safety in the building? And we were able to. Uh, which was remarkable, but it took over 200,000 labor hours <laughs> and 50 people over a year. And so we could do that here at Purdue because students are getting training and yeah. faculty are in the, the goal of education, but you can't necessarily contract that out to a private entity because uh, you think about billable hours. You know, if you're charged $150 an hour yeah. times 200000 for a single house, for a single study. Woo. So this, this one home that we did was not a $2 million project. This was uh, a, a small part of this larger study. Yeah. What's the deal with Legionella? So that, that's, a, that's a good question. And the federal government has requirements for Legionella monitoring in the water at hospitals and medical facilities because they know that there are sensitive people in those buildings that may have compromised immune systems or no immune system and they could get sick. And so there is a history of testing in these buildings, but one of the challenges that we found is that there really hasn't been much testing in other buildings, mm -hmm. like schools in the summer when everybody leaves, or office buildings during the pandemic when everybody gets sent home. So <clears throat> scientists and engineers and public health officials are rapidly trying to better understand water safety in these other buildings. Um, and they're trying to make decisions based on what we know from medical facilities. What was the most surprising thing that came out of that study and the least surprising thing? So the most surprising thing for me was finding out 
that the utility was not delivering chlorinated water sometimes to the building. And why that matters is because there's an assumption that chlorine or disinfected water in regulated public water systems is delivered to all homes. And that it's always treated in that way. Always. And you get this little consumer confidence report that tells you the average chlorine levels in your water. But the fact of the matter is, when you start saying, what about those numbers? And you start putting online very intensive water sampling equipment at certain service lines, you start understanding variability. Because it's an average. It's an average, and utilities don't monitor water quality at every house. They monitor at certain points in the distribution system because it's just too costly for them to do. And so really the big takeaway of that study for me was that I don't believe that we really understand water quality entering buildings. And if you don't understand water quality entering buildings, you're gonna have a really hard time predicting it at the faucet. Is it as simple as I'm picturing it of like proximity, like the closer you are to where it's treated, the more likely your water is gonna actually be what they say it is? I think that's a major component. So if you are right where the treatment plant distributes the water into the distribution system, you're probably gonna get a more consistent quality of water. If you're located on the far side of town and then there's a football stadium on one day that draws a whole bunch of water, and then there's a manufacturing facility that draws a whole bunch of water Monday through Friday or maybe the night shift, the water quality that might get to that building that you live in could be different than what people assume is going into Um, say the manufacturing facility or the football stadium and such. That's kind of scary. (laughs) A little bit, a little bit. A little concerning. (laughs) Well, that's that's where the industry, the utility industry is headed. They want better monitoring. They want more granularity in their data. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's also that hesitance because if they find out that the water quality is a lot more variable than they thought, Then you have to deal with it. Then they have to address that communications issue where they're issuing reports telling people that the water is um, consistent all the time. Uh, It's like the Schrodinger's utility pipe. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Knowing that water quality is most likely going to be variable when it comes into your house, when you turn on the tap to drink a glass of water, would you recommend people use like filtering in the house? Filters in home water treatment devices and building water treatment devices have a place. Uh, They have limitations too. Mm -hmm. So if you don't like the taste of chlorine in the water or uh, a musty odor that is associated with algae in a lake and your treatment facility is not designed to remove it, but it's not harmful, it's still a problem for you at home. So Pitcher filters or home water treatment systems can remove that, and that's a great, that's a great thing. There come consequences, however, when uh, individuals try to apply treatment to protect public health, and they don't necessarily know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll give this example. This one uh, school in Indiana was being delivered safe, potable water, mm-hmm. but once the water got to the school, it caused massive copper leaching from all of the plumbing and exceeded the acute threshold that could cause children to be sick immediately. 
and um, some engineering consultants got involved and they installed filters on the drinking water fountains that were not capable of making that water safe, but they thought it was. Mm. And so sometimes you get into situations where you really need to understand the issue, especially when it comes to health, and you want to communicate with the utility to find out what, if anybody else has had this issue. And then you want to team up with experts and sometimes, you know, the experts that you talk to are not necessarily experts, yeah. but but you really need to cover all your bases so that, um, you know, you get the desired effect of whatever intervention you're choosing. So we talked about the most surprising result from that study. What was the least surprising result? The, the least surprising result was, well, that was a lot of work. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no shortcut to just having a lot of data points, right? That's the issue, I think, that has been facing public health and the plumbing industry and building construction industry. So there's a lot of talk about big data and technology. Yeah. But what we prove is that you, you can get the data you need to make these decisions, mm -hmm. but currently the technology is in its infancy yeah. that we can't get there. So you can put a man on the moon once, but can you do it again the next week? No. Yeah. And can you do it at cost? That yeah, I guess that was going to be my other question too. Is like, did it was part of the reason it took so long being inhibited by the technology you have? Yes. Generally, you cannot measure water quality in a building at every fixture and even entering that building real time. Mm -hmm. You can measure temperature, pH, turbidity, which is like cloudiness in the water, uh, chlorine level, and that system costs like nine thousand dollars. One of them. So we bought one and put it on the water service line coming from the utility going into the house. So we could do that. But in a residential home, you can have 13 fixtures. You can have a hot water system, a cold water system. And so multiply that by 9,000. If we were going to do that, <clears throat> and then that's not Legionella. Right. That's not copper. That's not lead. And so we are not there yet as a society about being able to predict water quality at the faucet at a large scale. That's so wild. Yeah. I mean, it feels like we should be able to know those things. In, in the U.S., we have done away with a lot of the problems with E. coli, pathogens in the water um, due to sanitation issues. So we have amazing water treatment facilities in general, and we have excellent and competent uh, organizations that operate them and maintain them, and we have state agencies and federal agencies. So we have this um, kind of stacked effect of of public health protection. But the issue is if we wanna understand and predict water safety at the faucet, do I have a 100-foot service line or a 10-foot service line or what material should I use or when I leave the home for two weeks and come back, what do I gotta do to make sure there's nothing bad in the water that affects me? We're not there yet. I mean, it feels like our water systems for when you turn on the faucet and something comes out, it feels like it's been cobbled together through all these different parts and there's all these different variables and then there's yeah. been changes in how they do things and then you probably have old stuff and also new stuff and like all of these different things that result in water coming out and we know like, yeah, we're probably not gonna get sick from it at this point. Yeah. But we might, because there's just so many different things that go into getting it there. There are many systems that I'll call Frankenstein yeah. systems, where you have one material that goes in and then a new development comes in mm -hmm. with a different material and different water demands. And you know, due to codes and societal pressures, 
it's just a natural progression of development and growth for communities, uh, whether it be economic or, or other. So these utility managers and engineers and scientists that operate these systems have to deal with those issues. When something's zoned as residential and they're low on pressure, they have to plan for, okay, where are we gonna put our new tanks? How old is that water gonna be? What it's gonna do to this part of the system? And so that's a challenge where um, not only there's economic costs associated with the water system, but there's these planning um, operational costs as well. Can you talk a little bit about like microplastics and is that something we should be worried about and is that something that's happening in our houses? The microplastics that you put down your drain, whether they're because of personal products that you use or wear or the degradation of uh, t-shirts and all sorts of other you know, personal products, or when softeners blow out and you have microplastics going into your plumbing, you're gonna put it down the drain, you're gonna put it on the ground. All of that ultimately goes to the sewer and the environment and then gets recycled. And, and so- it comes back into your house. It could, it could come back into your house if it goes back through the treatment system and it's not removed and then goes back into the distribution system and such. Right. That's one of the major issues public health officials are focusing on now is the cycle of microplastics. I mean, if it's not being looked for or removed, then collectively over time, the concentration will just get bigger and bigger. I mean, it's like we just keep going back to that like data thing where we just don't have data. We don't know. Again, also goes back to the like taking it for granted. Like if everyone thinks that it's fine now, we don't have enough people pushing for it, I guess. And even though it is regulated, we don't even know what we don't know. And that's one of the issues that you find with public health officials and regulators. They like to tell you things that they're confident in, but they don't like to talk in the gray areas. Mm -hmm. But I think for society, we need to start talking in the gray areas because people can handle not knowing, as long as they know that you don't know and that you're working towards a solution. So I think that's the value of science, engineering, and technology, is that as long as we all are on the same page about what's known and not known, and I can make personal decisions for myself about my own safety and that of my family. I mean, it's so much of what we're talking about with you. It seems like the changes that need to happen to keep water quality higher need to happen at like a collective level and not an individual level. But is there anything an individual can do to help push for that collective action? So I have personally seen individuals uh, collectively engage their utilities that are using technologies, whatever they may be, uh, organize with their community members or customers, and then engage with elected officials. Mm -hmm. And that has caused change. And it's only possible because people took initiative about their own health and their community and also want to fix their infrastructure. That's actually like really encouraging. We rely on clean water in our homes every day. Considerable time, money, and science go into making sure it comes ready to use. Follow along this season of The Collective Tap as we dip further into some of the challenges we face in providing clean water for everyone. In our next episode, we will take a look at the real cost of a green lawn. Later this season, we will talk with experts about the condition of our source waters, affordability and equity issues, what it means to lose access to water, and we will follow Taz and Devon as they try to reduce their own usage. That's it for now. Thank you for joining us in this conversation about water. The Collective Tap is a project of the White River Alliance, a 501c3 organization located in Indianapolis, Indiana. 
We are an alliance of diverse interests and organizations that work together to steward the river and its watershed. It is made possible with generous funding from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust. If you want to learn more, visit us at thecollectivetap.com or at thewhiteriveralliance.org. Produced in partnership with Absorb.